0: This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org Good afternoon. It is uh, time to get started, so we're going to go ahead and and uh, try to use all the time we can today to uh, to get as much covered as we can. We're going to be covering the history of biblical interpretation. Now, I don't propose that we'll be able to make an exhaustive study of biblical interpretation, but uh, we are going to seek to do as much as we can with the time that we have um, allotted to us today. Um, we... Study this because it helps us to understand some of the trends and some of the uh, moves, I guess you might say, in interpretation today, in biblical interpretation, and it helps us to sort of see as we've seen the uh, way people have approached the Bible in the past, it helps us to, I think it helps us to um, know how we ought to approach the Bible today. So let's just begin with a word of prayer and we'll get right into this history. Father in heaven. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to study and to learn today. We thank you for um, the Bible. And as we've already seen in the previous sessions, it's a, it's a power, it is the power of God that works to change us, the living and eternal Word of God. And um, it's the object of our, or I should say it's the, um, it's the it, you use it to bring about our conversion and our cleansing as well. And so as we study today, we pray that you would just guide our hearts and our minds, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, we're going to start with the Jewish age, um, Jewish interpretation of the apostolic age. We're going to start talking about how the Jews viewed the scriptures at the time of the early church. And uh, this is not too hard to do because we have a number of thought leaders that Spoke or wrote uh, widely about the use of the Bible. We're going to start with Philo of Alexandria. Alexandria, of course, was where many Jews were were scattered during the diaspora. Philo, a Jewish um, commentator philosopher, used allegory with great force. Um, now, not many of his contemporaries were using such uh, uh, methods of interpreting the Bible, but Philo used this and. For example, an example of how Philo used allegories, he said the trees of knowledge uh, and life in Eden did not actually exist, but were symbols, just as the serpent who seduced Eve was a symbol of lust. So basically, what a person does when they take an allegory, they take an allegorical view of Scripture, they say "This, this passage wasn't meant to describe something factual or historical, It's an allegory with a hidden meaning. We just have to understand what that hidden meaning is. Now, this is a trend that you're going to see coming back over and over in in the history of biblical interpretation. Philo is one of the early um, expositors who use allegories in a very uh, dramatic way. Philo taught that whenever a text presented difficulties made no sense, contained contradictions, or was unworthy of Scripture... That's quite a list of possibilities, right? That At that point, the literal meaning should be given up in favor of an allegorical interpretation. He called this the laws of allegory. So whenever a text presented difficulties, made no sense, contained contradictions, or was unworthy of Scripture, the literal meaning should be given up. Now there's a problem with this philosophy or this principle of interpretation. The problem is we might think it doesn't make sense because we don't like what it says, right? or it uh, presents difficulties because it crosses with my natural desires. So that's no problem in in Philo's mind. All we need to do is now view this as an allegorical passage. We read it as an allegory, and we just have to understand what those symbols or those actual literal words represent. The result was that very few of the biblical stories were retained as as factual in Philo's commentaries. Everything was spiritualized and allegorized, in a phys- philo- philosophical language appealing to the intellectuals of the age, the Greek Hellenistic world. It took centuries for the church to recover from Philo's influence. Now, it's talking about the Christian church. Even though we had the Jews, um, Philo uh, not being a Christian, this was an, he was an influence in the early Christian church. So we're going to talk a little bit about the early and medieval church, and I think you're going to see um, some of the same things coming up the use of the Scripture as allegories, but we'll get into that in just a minute. Clement, one of the church fathers, as they call them, wrote to the Corinthian church as early as 95 A.D. This would have been probably while the apostle John was still alive, um, appealing to Scripture as a basis for his exhortations to unity, illustrating the evils of jealousy, the value of repentance, the need for humility, or unity, orderliness, and respect for proper authority. So here he uses Scripture in a very we would consider an appropriate way um, using scriptures to uh, exhort the church to these good things. Tertullian, another father, church father, gives the first example of the use of a Christian extra-biblical source. He moved from mainstream thought to a stricter movement of the day called montanism. Um, This was an offshoot of the Christian church. You know, it didn't take very long for the church to start having divisions, right? Paul said that after my departure, this would happen. And um, it did happen. Montanism was a group of Christians that followed the teachings of the prophet. They considered a prophet Montanus. And there was a prophetess, um, two prophetesses involved, Priscilla and Maximilla. And um, this offshoot of Christianity, um, Tertullian began to be um, um, involved with, and he appeals to their writings as authoritative in addition to Scripture in works such as On the Veiling of Virgins. Uh, Arrhenius, another um, early church father, or what is generally referred to as an early church father, um, a disciple of Polycarp from 80, about AD 185, allegorizes the law of clean and unclean animals as referring to people. Now, this is a good, exa- good example of what an allegory is, okay? I use this term allegory and allegorizing or allegorical, and you're probably thinking, what's an allegory? What's an allegorical? Um, we often think of Pilgrim's Progress as, a, as an example of an allegory, right? An allegory is something like a parable. It's a story. It's like a historical, factual passage that's written with names and dates and places or that type of a thing, but they're not real. They, they all symbolize something else. So in Pilgrim's Progress, you have the slew of despond, Right? And we know that that allegory is really talking about the days in our Christian life when we get discouraged, and, and that's an allegory, right? We have an allegory um, or parable, some very similar idea, in The Rich Man and Lazarus, Jesus told. Um, it was a story that was well known in the Greek world of the day. So here you have a, an example of what an allegory is. He said that the law of clean and unclean animals that we find in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus... It actually refers to people. So don't be so worried about your camel burgers. They're okay. Um, This is talking about people. What's the people? Clean are true Christians who make their way steadily towards God and the Son. That's what a divided hoof is. Got that? Makes sense, right? That's a divided hoof. And also, they meditate day and night upon the words of God. That's chewing the cud. So do you chew your cud? Wait a minute! Don't you meditate day and night on the scriptures? That's chewing the gut. See, that's the allegory. Now, this is this is this is beginning to take their Bibles. This is what happens when you take your Bible and you start looking at it. Not what do the words mean, as in the literal meaning of the words and what is it saying to me. This is saying what is the what could it symbolize? Okay, an allegorical reading. So the, that's a clean animal. Our true Christians who make their way steadily towards the Father and Son, and also meditate day and night upon the Word of God. Thank you. The unclean, he who said, this is erroneous, um, the unclean, there are three classes of unclean. The Gentiles who do neither, the Jews who chew the cud but lack the divided hoof. See, they don't go towards the Father and the Son, they're just towards the Father, so they're not dividing their hoof. And heretics who don't chew but have the divided hoof, so somehow they're they don't study their Bibles, but they believe in the Father and the Son. Now, this is a good example of what an allegorization of the Scriptures is. And um, this became very, very popular. Uh, Barnabas, about A.D. 130, tried to imitate Paul's use of allegorization in Galatians 4.22-31. But he differed from Paul's methodology in two specific ways. He allegorizes profusely. And his kind of allegorization is such as to deny or at least minimize the original intent of the Old Testament scriptures. So this is what Paul did. You remember in, in Galatians chapter four, he talks about there are two cities, right? The New Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem underneath. He talked about the two sons, the son of, 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 um, of um, Hagar, Ishmael, and he talked about the son of promise, the child of promise, the son of Sarah, Isaac, right? And he used these two sons to, as an allegory to represent the, uh, the salvation by faith or salvation by works, in essence. So he uses this in a very powerful way as an allegory. But there's a couple of things that we want to remember. And when we come back to this, uh, maybe a little later in the next seminar, we can talk about this more. But um, I'll just mention it now, since some of you may not be here for the next seminar. What I'm going to say is that the use of allegories is not... Is not recommended, or it's not indicated in the Bible, unless it's obvious that it's an allegory. So you have the rich man and Lazarus, right? The story of the rich man and Lazarus. You know that story, how when you die you go straight to Abraham's lap, right? Now, how many people are going to fit on Abraham's lap, right? Doesn't that become a little bit of a statist- statistical problem? Um, and, and the and the poor fellow down in in uh, in hell, he's asking that a drop of water be dripped onto his tongue to help him in his thirst from the fires of hell. Is a drop of water really going to help you if you're burning in hell? It's clearly, for this and other reasons, this is an allegory, right? This is, this is not a literal story. So then why does Paul take an allegory and make it type and typology, um, type and antitype? Why does he do that? Well, there's a couple of things I want you to remember. First of all, Paul had the gift of prophecy. He was a prophet, okay? So I believe that while Paul took a passage and made it allegorical, used it allegorically, we can now study that and also use it allegorically, right? But we do not, I don't believe, we do not have the right to take a story from the Bible and just make it an allegory, make it a prophecy. You'd be surprised how many people take an Old Testament story and try to apply it down to our time using the allegorical interpretive method. The allegorical interpretive method is a great way to teach truth. It is also a great way to teach error because now you are deciding what those types and antitypes are. You understand? Not the Apostle Paul, not someone with the gift of prophecy, but you are deciding that now, as in our previous example, chewing the cud means studying the Bible. How do you know that it doesn't mean eating vegan? How do you know that it doesn't just mean, you know, chewing your food real well or whatever else? There's all kinds of personal interpretations that can come in when we start using allegories. So many, many people use allegories to teach truth, but the problem is that that same principle of interpretation can be used to teach error as well. So before we go on, I want to just touch base on that fact. So Origen, moving on, Origin had a threefold interpretation. Scriptures is comparable to body, soul, and spirit in the human being. In other words, when you read a given passage, there are at least three meanings to that passage. At least three meanings. Just like we have a body, a soul, and a spirit, There's, a, there's a, uh, three, there are three, pa- three meanings to a passage. So, following the Greek way of thinking, he viewed matter negatively. So, the least significant in, uh, interpretation of Scripture was the literal meaning, and more was placed on the spiritual or allegorical or spiritual interpretations. So, he said the Scriptures, they basically described sometimes what did not take place, sometimes what could not have happened, and sometimes what could have happened but did not. Sounds like he had a very high confidence in the Scriptures, didn't he? Um, He wasn't wasn't really any different than some of the others who simply said, "If if it doesn't make sense, it must be an allegory. And Origen's views were not... Universally accepted, but they were influential. So influential that Origen's threefold interpretation was later expanded to a fourfold one: a literal, a literal reading of the scriptures—that's what it says, right? Then an allegorical one, one where this wor- this person represents this spiritual aspect or a spiritual experience. A tropological, which is basically talking about um, heaven or the things. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the anagogical is heaven. Tropagogical is, uh, is talking about the morals and moral metaphors, sort of like an illustration of, of a moral teaching, um, sort of like an idealist interpretation we would talk about um, of prophecy. And sec- and finally, an anagogical, which is talking about what the afterlife or heaven or what happens after this. So every passage in this paradigm of interpretation came to be viewed as having four meanings. You understand why you needed so many theologians, right? Because they had to figure out all four meanings. And if you think four was hard to figure out, there were some who went far further. We'll talk about that in a little while. Uh, and so Martin Luther's early lectures in Wittenberg used these principles. You're talking about many, many hundreds of years later, Origen's influence on theology was still profound and that his threefold, later fourfold meanings of Scripture were still being used by expositors in Martin Luther's time in the 15th century. Martin Luther's early lectures in Wittenberg used these principles, although we later rejected them for the grammatical historical approach, which we'll be talking about in our next seminar. So, moving on, Augustine of Hippo, um, probably the most um, influential father both in doctrine and hermeneutic. he, uh, he influenced the, the teaching of the millennium. Um, Augustine, for one thing, um, as I recall, he was the one who basically said that the, uh, the, the devil being thrown into the bottomless pit and sealed for a thousand years, that took place on the cross, and the thousand years that they were living in was the time when the devil was sealed. Now, this had an unintended consequence when they came to year 999, because do you remember why 2K? y two k was a big deal right this was y1k and y1 k was a real big deal too because they reasoned thusly that if the devil's been in prison the last thousand years and the world's been this bad, how bad was going to be when he gets out of prison right and so a lot of people were committing suicide and and dreading the uh, the new millennium that would that would come about um, but uh Augustine had a very interesting um, view on hermeneutics. We won't go a lot into his, his, um, his, uh, his views right now. Now, during the Middle Ages, you can see these church fathers sort of set the groundwork for some rather complex, complicated viewing of Scriptures. It's no wonder that people began to say, look, this reading of the Bible thing is so complicated that we really shouldn't have lay people doing it. I mean, after all, there's four different readings, the least important of which is the literal that lay people can easily understand. So, these, these other readings, the anagogical, the tropological, the, the allegorical, these readings, that we need, we need educated philosophers, theologians to, have, to come up with these meanings. Otherwise, they're all going to be arguing about what the allegorical meaning of this passage is. Well, that's true. In fact, During the Middle Ages, as these people wrote the Bible, studied the Bible, they actually began um, in many days, many times in those days, they would write notes in the margins. They would actually write the scriptures, the original texts. They would write them with the lines fairly spaced apart, and then they would read, they would write notes as to what their interpretations were. Well, I think the allegorical meaning or the tropological meaning or the uh, anagogical meaning of this passage, and they would write these notes, In the, in the, the term they used to, uh, was to gloss. Um, and today we have the t- a similar term we use for glossary, right? Um, but the glosses were, were basically the commentary written between the lines. You heard that phrase before? We still use it in English, something you have to read between the lines to know what they mean. Well, because back then they wrote between the lines to say what they meant, you see. So they would write between the lines. Sometimes there would be so much written between the lines that you couldn't even read the original text anymore. But that didn't really matter because that was the literal text. And these were just the, the meanings or the interpretations or the commentary on the text. So this was the Bible in the Middle Ages. It was, we should note, the most studied book. We sometimes have the idea that the Bible just wasn't studied during the Middle Ages. Well, it was studied. It wasn't studied by the layman. It wasn't generally available to the layman in the common vernacular, in their common language, the, 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 uh, the, the language of the layperson. But it was studied by the educated in the church. That was generally the people who were educated, were the theologians, the priests, the monks, and so forth. So, the Bible is definitely a very studied book. There's a period of transition, however, to where less and less theology would be based on biblical interpretation, and uh, this transition took place um, noticeably in the writings of Thomas Aquinas. At least four up to seven meanings would be sought in each text. We already talked about the four, right? That wasn't enough for some theologians. They needed to find seven different branches of meanings throughout the Bible. And um, they would be looking for that. And of course, as you know, the Greek way of thinking, the body is less important than the spirit, right? The corpus is inferior. The spiritus is, it's, that's the, the, um, the immortal spirit and so forth. That's what's really important. So in their mind, the corporal, the body, was the literal sense of the text. And that was the least important. It really was. What was more important were these other interpretations that would come from that. And um, it's very interesting because this this led to an elevation of the view of the interpreter rather than to an elevation of the view of Scripture. Do you understand the difference? In other words, it's a lot more fun to come up with something creative and have people say, wow, how did you figure that out? That is so deep. You found the seventh meaning of this verse rather than elevating the Scripture and saying, the literal me it says what it says. And the Scripture is what's important, not the interpreter. Do you understand the difference? And sometimes we, we tend to elevate the interpreter still today instead of the Scripture. So, all things were considered to have sacramental significance that leads to God. These different, these different um, inter- what, schools of interpretation or streams of interpretation... The universities of the day, of the Middle Ages, had a big influence on the view of Scripture. Um, studies was, were centralized in Paris, and um, all interpretations were based upon the multiple senses of Scripture. So, if you were to go to a, theolo- a theological school in those days, if you were even to the point of uh, up to the time of Calvin or so, if you were to go to a school in Paris and you were to study theology, you really wouldn't be studying the Bible. You'd be studying how different commentators viewed these different interpretations of Scripture. Very, very complex and uh, very difficult to sort of wrap your mind around. Throughout most of the Middle Ages, the influence of the Greek fathers led theologians to the allegorical, mystical interpretations of Scripture. And eventually, the Aristotelian uh, manner of exposition led to the question, what is God saying in His Word? Did He intend to conceal His meaning or did He intend to express it? And this led to a new emphasis on the literal. So you see sort of a little bit of a pendulum swing here, don't you? All of a sudden, we're bringing our emphasis back to the literal meaning of Scripture, which in our view would be a very good thing to do. And um, this would actually be something we'll come back to in a minute. This would, this would really come to an apex um, after the fall of Constantinople when a lot of the, um, the European-type Scholars who were in the Eastern world fled the, the rise of the Turks and came back to Europe and with them they brought back their knowledge, almost lost by this time, of the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek. And all of a sudden in Rome and in Paris and the other places around Europe, people began studying the Old Testament in its original language. They began studying the New Testament in its original language. When you did that, you were doing it without the glosses. You didn't have all the commentary. So they were getting back to the text, which, by the way, God was working to bring about the great Protestant Reformation through that very process, but we are getting ahead of ourselves. Um, A number of medieval interpreters we can look to and sort of understand how they interpreted Scripture. Bernard wrote 86 sermons on the Song of Songs. Hugo of St. Victor, um, although he followed the threefold principle of, of origin, he emphasized the literal sense. Andrew of St. Victor in the 1100s used a twofold principle based on the Christian and a Jewish interpretation. Um, and this, uh, in his day, was a rare arousal of interest in the original sources. Stephen Langton, uh, th- uh, th- uh, 12th and 13th century, Archbishop of Canterbury, sought to clarify the distinction between the spiritual and the literal. And by the way, We can owe Langton Langton quite a bit of credit because he is the one uh, that we believe was the most influential in our current divisions of the Bible into chapters and verses. Imagine if someone said to you in Sabbath school or during this sermon, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of John, the story about the the healing of the man born blind, and um, you just had to know what part of John that was in, and be able to get to that passage, that story. There was no verses, there's no chapters, right? That'd be a little difficult. And um, Langton is the one who um, divided the Bible into chapters and verses. Very interesting, 13th century, not that long ago in the great scheme of things. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, still a philosopher, still primarily used scripture for the confirmation of dogma, church dogma, but asserted that the literal sense of scripture was the basis for the other senses which can be built upon it. And a change gradually takes place, but was accompanied by an increased emphasis on philosophy and human reason. So this moves us down to the history of biblical interpretation in Reformation times. We know the story of Martin Luther and um, his his uh, arraignment before the diet, where he said, here I stand, I can do no other. I am bound by scriptures, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Remember, we mentioned earlier, Martin Luther began teaching theology at the church in, at the school in Wittenberg with the principles of, of fourfold interpretation being his methodology. However, he soon diverged from those fourfold principles and began to see the Bible as meaning what it says, God not trying to conceal his message, but trying to reveal his message. John Collet, um, again, we note that the fall of Constantinople took place in 1453, and um, John Collet, uh, born 13 years later and uh, working throughout much of the next century, he, um, he, he caught from Italy the renewed emphasis the Italian human, humanists placed on understanding ancient cultures, and um, he returned to England. So, these, these from Constantinople, some of these, these uh, expositors and philosophers, and I guess you might say experts in biblical language, had come largely to Italy, and um, now it's taken back to Rome through John Collet. Uh, he began giving a series of lectures on Paul's epistles with a focus on making the passages, the meaning of the passages, practical to the lives of of the listeners. It's interesting that one of the people who attended Colet's lectures was a man by the name of Erasmus. And Erasmus was a, a contradiction of, of a person, a very bright, very brilliant man. In fact, he was at one point in England, he was, he was visiting and um, he was in some sort of a little restaurant, a little cafe, and he was eating a meal, and this stranger to him walked in. Uh, of course, this was before they had Facebook, right? So they didn't know what people looked like, even if they had been communicating with them or they had read their works. They didn't have photographs like we would have today and all the rest. So this fellow walks in and, and um, Erasmus, they begin talking. And as they begin talking, they begin realizing, they both begin realizing that, that, um, that there was a lot of, of um, intellect residing in the other side of the table. And I, I'm trying to remember exactly who this person was, an English philosopher, at the time, Protestant sort of Protestant. Um, anyway, in the middle of their conversation, Erasmus jumped up and he said, "You either you must be so and so," um, and the other person jumped from his table and he said, "Either you're Erasmus or you're the devil," and um, and they they began a friendship. This friendship was, or their debate, I should say, largely centered over transubstantiation. These two fellows didn't agree on transubstantiation. They both had a Non Catholic view, the, the Protestant view, but but um, the, um, well, I shouldn't say that. The Englishman actually had a, a Protestant, uh, a Catholic view of transubstantiation, because this is what happened. Um, in their discussion, the Englishman told Erasmus, he said, if you really believe that you have the body of Christ in that wafer, then you will have it. You know, it's based upon your faith. So that's not quite Catholic, because the Catholic said the priest made it the body of Christ, whereas the Englishman is arguing that it's based upon the faith of the partaker to make it the body of Christ, okay? Erasmus says it's never the body of Christ, right? So, um, they became friends, and uh, to make a long story short, they, um, they parted ways. Well, this is how they parted ways. Erasmus asked his friend if he could take his favorite horse for a ride one day. And Erasmus rides off on his friend's horse and takes it with him back to Holland, across the English Channel, takes off with his friend's favorite horse. And his friend was not happy. He wrote a scathing letter to Erasmus demanding that he return his favorite horse. And Erasmus wrote a very short letter back. He said, simply believe that you have your horse and you will have it. (laughs) And uh, yeah, this was Erasmus of the... his, his, His best known work is his collating... Of the Greek New Testament basically Erasmus began to look at all of the different Greek manuscripts that existed of the Bible and by that time there were several hundred maybe I don't remember exactly I think there was over 600 that they knew of during that time so he's analyzing them to see which ones if you look at all of them I mean if all 600 have the same verse in it in the same way you're pretty sure that that's an original verse right but when there's one transcript that is missing a verse in the 599, let's say, I'm just using that number as, a, as an illustration. 599 have the verse, one is missing it, you're pretty sure the verse belongs there. You understand the idea. So he's, he's analyzing these different manuscripts, and he then collates them into one Greek manuscript. We call it the Textus Receptus. And this is the received text, in other words. And he collates that into the Greek New Testament, which he published in 1516. The Greek New Testament of Erasmus would become the foundation of all Protestant Bibles translated thereafter. It would be the the foundation of of Calvin's Bible and of of Luther's Bible and so forth. So, he's a very very, uh, well-known expositor. And um, because of the the, uh, new approach these men took, uh, Luther translating the New Testament into German, Calvin later into French. Um, the, new te- the approach these men took more closely followed that of the early church expositors of the New Testament. Why? Because they relied on the Hebrew and Greek texts, and instead of, instead of more of the traditional views of the church, the Apocrypha and other, other passages which are, were deemed by Erasmus and others not to be, have, uh, not to be a part of the canon. And by the way, if you've ever studied with Jehovah's Witnesses, um, you will probably know that they, they, di- they dispute a certain verse. Their Bible, the New World Translation, does not have a certain ber- verse in their writings. Is it 1 John where it talks about these three bear witness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right, in heaven? Um, they, they believe that that verse was added uh, because this doctrine of the Trinity needed to be supported. You'll hear people that say that. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, I guess even some anti-Trinitarians in Adventism will probably make that argument. And we can thank Erasmus for that debate because in Erasmus' earliest manuscripts, he also did not include that verse in his his transcript of the New Testament. Later, however, further studied, and I don't think there was any... I I know there was no papal pressure because he was... Quite clearly not in the fold of Rome, but later there was further study and he decided that that verse was in the original manuscripts and should be there. But again, that whole debate that Jehovah's Witnesses might take us to task on goes back to the time of Erasmus and his work in collating the, Christ- the, the, the Greek New Testament. Inadvertently, at first, they also repudiated ecclesiastical tradition with the Vulgate. Now, the Vulgate is the Latin translation of the Bible that the church said was the appropriate translation. But the Latin Vulgate was not the original source, of course. The Greek and Hebrew were the original source. The Latin Vulgate was a translation, and it did not in all cases rely upon very accurate original sources of Hebrew and Greek. So the Reformers rejected the Latin Vulgate. And with a historical grammatical method, they renounced the fourfold exegetical system and replaced it with a literal principle of interpretation. Now, moving on through the Council of Trent, 25 sessions, the church convened, this is the Roman Catholic Church, between 1545 and 1563. Over those 18 years, the Catholic Church convened 25 sessions to try to plan and execute the counter-reformation. You understand, the Reformation is taking place. Martin Luther has nailed his theses on the church door in Wittenberg in 1517. The 500-year anniversary is next year. And uh, by 1545, the Reformation is in full bloom, and the Catholic Church is saying, what are we going to do about this? We need to do something about these biblical expositors who are pointing to the Word of God as authority for their teachings and overthrowing the authority of the church, and overthrowing some of the dogma and doctrines of the church. So, um, one of the issues that had to be addressed was the issue of inspiration, the issue of the Bible. The fourth session in 1546 decreed concerning the Bible, saying the Scriptures and ecclesiastical tradition be received and venerated with an equal affection of piety and reverence. Do you see what the church has just done? The church has just said, look, we understand there's debate about how the Bible should be interpreted. That was an understatement. Um, the Reformation had pretty much shook their world. But, he said, the church said, we ought to not put everything into the Bible, all our eggs in one basket. Instead, there are two streams of divine revelation coming down. One is ecclesiastical tradition. What has the church said in the past? What are the church fathers written? What is our practice, our liturgy, and our... our um, our literary uh, history. So, these two streams are to have equal affection of piety and reverence. It was also declared, and by the way, um, by the way, it was not just to have equal streams, uh, equal piety and reverence. They, They came to the point where they said, of the two, tradition is the more safe because it's easier to Be sure that we're understanding it correctly. It was also declared that the Latin Vulgate, which by the length and usage of so many ages had been approved by the church, be in public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions held as as authentic, and that no one is to dare or presume to reject it under any pretext whatever. So the Latin Vulgate is the Bible that Roman Catholicism approved, and any other translation was considered anathema it was considered heretical you were not to use any other bible now you understand this is why wars were fought over which version of the bible they were going to use Um, they they had to the the uh, the protestant reformation through cal through erasmus's received text and now the translation earlier they had had wycliffe's translation in english but now they have these new translations based on their textus receptus and they uh, they were holding to their Bibles, while the Roman Catholic Church was saying only the Latin Vulgate can be used in public um, discussions. At Worms, Luther not only said, "Unless I am convinced by testimony from Scriptures," but also added, "Or evident reason." And here he's referring to reason, not in a tomastic or rationalist sense, but in the clear sense of clear deductions from the Bible. So. Martin Luther was not saying that there are two authorities in my life, reason from a very rationalist point of view, a humanistic point of view, and Scripture. No, he's saying the Bible and reason as in um, clear deductions from what the Bible is saying. Correct reason is bound by the Word and enlightened by faith and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. So, There's a number of things that took place in the Christian church as a result of this view of Scripture. The Reformers themselves were first transformed by an encounter with the Scriptures. They were among the most educated men of their age, familiar with ancient and medieval philosophy, but they did not have peace with God, and the Bible alone is what gave them an understanding of salvation and brought them to peace. This was a very, very important thing because they personally had an interaction with the Scriptures that was life-changing. They also believed that salvation was by grace alone, grace through faith. Um, you know the story from the great controversy. By a recent decretal, an indulgence had been promised by the Pope to all who should ascend upon their knees on Pilate's staircase, said to have been descended by our Savior before, uh, on leaving the Roman judgment hall, and to have been miraculously conveyed from Jerusalem to Rome by Constantine's mother, by the way, uh, was the saint that made that happen. But um, Luther is going up these steps. And by the way, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Scala Santa, the Holy Steps in Rome. It's just across the street from the main cathedral of Rome. We sometimes think of uh, St. Peter's Basilica as being the main cathedral because that's where the Vatican is headquartered now. But the the original church of Rome is actually the church of uh, St. John the Lateran. And that's uh, on the other side of the Colosseum from the from the Vatican and this is actually the pope is the bishop of that church St John the Lateran that is the that is the primary church in Rome and right across the street during the reformation days that's where the um, the Scala Santa was it still is so if you go and you see St John the Lateran um, and then you see the uh, uh, across the street this pile staircase you will find that if you go during the middle of the day There's not very many people there. You can see all the steps. And by the way, halfway up the steps, or actually only three or four steps up, there's a a little glass window. Because the real steps, the real steps from Jerusalem, you know, that were transported miraculously there to Rome um, that Jesus walked on, they've been covered by wood so that they don't get worn out, you know? I mean, after all these centuries, they have wood covering them. And over in the wood, there are some little glass windows. And those little glass windows, you can see down to the... To the stone steps below, and there are stains that are believed to be the very blood stains of Jesus. I'm just telling you what they believe. And as they, and, and no doubt very honestly and sincerely, as they climb up these steps, they kneel on the step and then they say a prayer. They have their rosaries there and they're saying a prayer. And then when they finish that prayer, they move on to the next step and they say another prayer. And they say a prayer on every step as they go on. But as they come past these plexiglass windows, if they're lucky enough to have enough room there, they will bend over and kiss them because those are over the the very blood of Jesus. And if you go there during the evening, like after work gets out, five, six o'clock, there will be so many people on these steps. So many people on the steps. That when the top row moves off and stands up and gets up, the rest of the moves, rows move up. Nobody can move until everybody moves. They all move at once because it's just packed, solid. People going on their knees up the steps. There's a plaque there that says they get indulgences, plenary indulgence during the during the months of Lent. And someone was just telling me they were there recently. And there's because of a year of jubilee or something like that. There's an even special plenary indulgence that's there. Right now. So, this is what Martin Luther was doing. Can you believe it? 500 years ago? That's exactly the same staircase he, case he was on. And um, Luther was one day devoutly climbing these steps when suddenly a voice like thunder seemed to say to him, The just shall live by faith. He sprang upon his feet and hastened from the place in shame and horror. The text. "'never lost its power upon his soul. "'From that time he saw more clearly than ever "'the fallacy of trusting to human works for salvation "'and the necessity of constant faith "'in the merits of Christ. "'His eyes had been opened "'and were never again to be closed "'to the delusions of the papacy. "'When he turned his face from Rome, "'he turned away also in heart. and "'From that time the separation grew wider "'until he severed all connection "'with the papal church.'" Luther says this night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness which by faith which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with a hate with hate, now it became to me expressibly, inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So this became the great divide between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. What was it based upon? It was based upon a different reading of the Scriptures. The, Paul, uh, the, the Reformers, Luther, as a primary example this point, Luther is reading his Bible, and when the Bible says the just shall live by faith, that's what it means, right? He's using that and interpreting it and applying it to himself. And by the way, whenever we begin to study the Bible and have a personal rebirth experience, just like Luther said, the Bible looked like a new book. He he read it with new eyes. This changes the way we read the Bible itself. Let me say this a little more carefully. Because the Bible is spiritually discerned. Our best understanding of it happens when we have a heart that's been regenerated by the Spirit. Does that make sense? So, a theologian, looking at it simply intellectually, may fail to grasp the true meaning and impact of the Scriptures when a common person, reading it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because their heart is a converted heart, may come away with a much deeper and more profound meaning of the Scripture." And so this is something that the Reformers began to experience themselves. This is what the Council of Trent responded to this message of faith and grace alone. The Council of Trent, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. I don't want to get too far off the subject here, but... Do you understand the contrast between Luther and the Roman church at this time? Do you understand? Total opposite. Based upon their scriptures and their understanding of scripture, their interpretive principles, total opposite understanding of salvation, to the point where Luther is saying salvation is by grace through faith, it's not because of anything we do, it's because of what Christ did. We accept his sacrifice in our behalf and we receive the gift of salvation. It's a gift. The church says, if anybody says that, let him be anathema. That means cursed. That means cut off, right? So they've drawn a line in the sand. You cannot be a Protestant. You cannot believe in salvation by grace through faith alone and also be a Roman Catholic. You are out of here. That's what was happening. Can you believe? Can you believe that 500 years later, the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church says they now agree on the doctrine of justification? Yeah, that's what they say. They say we we agree on the doctrine of justification. Now, I don't know who changed, but somebody had to change. I don't think the Church of Rome changed. As far as I know, they still have to do the seven sacraments in order to be saved. But um, this is now, 500 years later, they've swept that all under the rug. It was a political disagreement. It was, uh, it was the result of, as some historians have suggested for many decades, it was the result of strong personalities and the, the, the moving of the culture of the time and the, the, the spirit of the age and all the rest. I don't believe that. I believe the Holy Spirit was working through a correct understanding of the Scriptures, which hadn't been around for a very long time. And um, by the way, a few months ago, you may have seen that there was a big celebration in Sweden with the Pope, Pope went up there, and they went to study, because it's be, we're beginning the 500th year of Protestant Reformation, and basically throughout this year, they're planning a lot of um, ecumenical um, events where the Pope and the other churches will get together, and there in Sweden, all the different Protestant churches and the Pope, they met together, and they had this big public event where they were saying, we're all in a fraternity now, we all believe, we all agree, we're all friends, we're all Christians and the Seventh-day Adventist Church was invited to be a part of that celebration. And um, to their credit, I'm very proud of our church leadership in Sweden. They wrote an, a kind response back, and they said we will respectfully decline to be a part of this celebration. And they included in that letter the basic idea was we believe the Reformation still needs to be completed. It's not over yet. And um, uh, that, was, that was something I felt was very... Appropriate to do. So, anathema for if you if you believe by, by faith, uh, grace through faith. The Papal Encyclicals, of page 11. Weigel says uh, the, the Catholic does not say in the first instance, What does the Bible say? Rather, he asks, What does the teaching church say? Over the book stands the church, while well, according to the Reformed conception, over the church stands the book. Very, very important conflict contrast. The Reformers based the scola Scriptura principle on a twofold activity of the Holy Spirit. The first, the Spirit that inspired the prophets, and second, the Spirit penetrating the hearts of those who read the prophets. So not only the inspiration of, of the prophet, Revelation inspiration, which we talked about in the last hour, but also the importance of the Spirit speaking to us in this hour. The church is the creation of the word, so the spirit governs the church only through scripture, according to the reformers. The spirit cannot be inconsistent with himself, so will not bring doctrinal instruction not already found in the Bible. The Reformation included an emphasis on personal discovery. Over time, a clear understanding of biblical truths could be expected. Why? Because for centuries, the Bible, when it had been written, had been read, I should say, or had been studied, it had been studied. In the context of commentaries, it had been studied in the context, <laughs> I was talking to a theologian a week or two ago, and he was sharing with me how sometimes in theologians, as as they, as they study their commentaries and other people's opinion of the Scriptures, they fail to look at the Scriptures themselves. And I don't remember exactly where he was, but he, he quoted someone as saying, you know what, we should really we should really study, we should really read what the Bible says. Sometimes the Bible sheds light on the commentaries. <laughs> uh, um, this is what happened in the Middle Ages. The churches were reading the commentaries more than they were reading the Bible, right? And, um, and they were often reading a translation, which was or a, a, from original manuscripts that were not very accurate. So as they came to personal discovery and as they themselves began to be moved by the Spirit, you could expect that their minds would be clearer and they would continue to understand further biblical truth. Creeds were only confessional statements of faith understood to be under the tutorage of the Scriptures. And creedal statements were given only a relative authority while the Scriptures were the absolute authority. We'll give you an example of this. The first Basel, Confession of Faith. We submit this, our confession, to the judgment of the divine Scriptures and hold ourselves ready, always thankfully, to obey God and his word if we should be corrected out of said holy scriptures. So even though the reformers did establish creeds, their intention was not that those creeds should be replacing the Bible. It was only after their death that the uh, creeds came to have more importance than the Bible. The Bible was in the purely Protestant understanding, the unregulated regulator, it was over the church stood the Bible, stood the book. That was the way they understood it. Creeds aside, um, the Bible would be uh, the paramount authority. Um, Ellen White writes this: Testimonies, Ministers, page four forty one, four forty two. Christianity has a much broader meaning than many have hitherto given it. It is not a creed. It is the word of him who lives and abides forever. It is a living and animating principle that takes possession of mind, heart, motives, and the entire man. Christianity, oh that we might experience its operations. It is a vital, personal experience that elevates and ennobles the whole man. Again, she reads, writes in selected messages, volume one, four, sixteen. The Bible and the Bible alone is to be our creed, the sole bond of union. So the the, the Scriptures are to have that paramount place in our both corporate life and in our personal life. The Reformation limited the sola scriptura to the canonized books of the Bible, so they did away with the Apocrypha, uh, while uh, in emphasizing the unity of the same. Um, from the 39 articles of the Church of England, we read, "...the Holy Scripture, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby." is not to be required of any man or to be thought requisite or necessary to salvation oh i'm sorry skip a line is not to be required of any man that it should not that it should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary for salvation luther characteristically recur, refers to all scripture all of holy writ the entire bible and appeals to the constant and unanimous judgment of scripture the reformers also recognize that the theological conclusions should be drawn in harmony with the Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, which were generally placed for reference at their table during disputations. So, what's happening during the Protestant Reformation? Faithfulness to the early ancient church and life and doctrine um, is the the mode of operation in the Catholic Church. Um, The Reformers... However, dispute that. They hold that what they taught was also taught by the ancient church. Um, The scriptures became the corrective norm because much of the traditions, the fathers, the councils were not rooted in the Bible alone. Basically, what this is saying is that the Catholic church claimed that it had its roots that went all the way back to the apostles, right? So we are the true church. We're the true Catholic church. Catholic just means universal. We are the church. And so we have authority because we go all the way back to Peter, our first pope. That's what they claim. The reformers said, not so fast. Because we go back all the way to the apostles because we teach what they taught. The early church, the apostolic church taught, Jesus taught what is in harmony with the scriptures. And that's what we are rediscovering and now teaching as well. Luther, in his theses in 1517, says, first I testify to... Or, uh, that I desire to say or maintain absolute nothing except, first of all, what is in the Holy Scriptures and can be maintained from them, and then what is in and from the writings of the Church Fathers and is accepted by the Roman Church and preserved both in canons and papal decrees. So, what did this have? What effect did this have on preaching during the Reformation? The emphasis of the clergy moved from the altar to the pulpit preaching of the word as the basic function of the ordained ministry grew out of the sola scriptura context. So let's look real briefly at the Reformation hermeneutics. A passage should first be understood in its literal or obvious simple meaning. They rejected, as Martin Luther did earlier we talked about, he rejected those fourfold interpretation. The text should be studied in its context by means of the historical grammatical method which takes into consideration the conditions of the times and the people to whom the scriptures were first written. The Hebrew and Greek texts of the Old Testament and New Testament should be consulted. In other words, the historical grammatical method says this. We're going to study what the verse says, but in order to understand what the verse means, we're going to take into consideration the historical context in which it was given. Now, this is a basic, this is very, very important. Because some people, when they say, well, we want to just have the plain reading of the text, they're somehow saying that there's no interpretation necessary. And the reality is, there's always interpretation necessary. If you want to quote me from something I said yesterday, you better be ready to interpret it correctly. You understand? If I say stop, and you quote me today as saying stop, but you're using it in a completely different context. You're taking it out of context, right? You're misapplying what I've said. Interpretation is always necessary for us to understand what was being said, what it meant to those people, what the principles were being taught were. And then once we understand that, we take what we've learned and we call it the bridge of interpretation, right? We take it sometimes 2,000 years. In the case of Ellen White, it's only 150 years or so. We take it and we take it past this passage of time. And we say, okay, that's what she was saying. That's what it meant to those people then at that time in that situation. How can I apply that in 2016, almost 2017 in my life today, right? That, is, that bridge from what was said yesterday to what, how I apply it to today is always necessary. And it's only possible to build that bridge after we have understood that context, what was being said what was being meant are you with me on that it's very very important that we don't we don't um, we don't lose that that bridge of interpretation down to our time we talk about that far furthermore in the following seminar uh, next hour scripture is used in to tr- interpret scripture the canonical scripture is being a self-sufficient authority in religious matters and the christocentric principle which makes christ the focal point of the bible is applied Um, Understanding the correct relationship between law and gospel, and the threefold usage of the law is basic to the interpretation of the scriptures, and the interpreter should be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and a personal faith alone and grace alone experience. These are the Reformation hermeneutics. And um, we would continue in biblical authority in post-Reformation times, but we are out of time. Um, I will say this much: that in the movement of Adventism, we actually. Let me say it this way: in post-Reformation times, modernism and other ways of thinking skewed the thinking of the theological word "world" back towards more of an allegorical understanding of Scripture. Okay. Kant and other early uh, modern uh, philosophers looked at Scripture very differently than the Reformers looked at Scripture. Okay, We don't have time to trace all that in this hour. But Adventism is, I believe, indeed a continuation of the Reformation going back to the sola scriptura, sola fita, sola gratia movement, understanding. And it is seeking to apply that That um, that uh, scripture to our word our world today, and so Adventism brings us back to a literal view of the scriptures uh, and the same principles of interpretation that we just went over that led to the uh, Protestant Reformation. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then we'll have a short break before our next seminar. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this day. This well, we just thank you that you've given us this Bible. And for the Word of God, Lord, we've seen throughout history as some people have sought to make it an allegorical or just a spiritual, mystical book. But you have a message for us today and we just pray that you will help us to find that message. Help us to be faithful and help us as we study our Bibles to study it from the position of a person who is illuminated by the Spirit of God, willing to be surrendered to the authority of the book over our lives and uh, filled with an experience that only comes by grace through faith. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, Visit us online at www.gycweb.org.